This is the third of three podcasts presenting three great scenes in cinema. There are countless great scenes in cinema, but I have chosen these specifically because they each possess atomic weight. They are so finely conceived, closely arranged, and precise in their delivery that although they last but a few moments, sometimes even just seconds, they each contain so much more than their physical and temporal spaces. Once examined, their meaning expands exponentially. That expansion can be emotional, cultural or cinematic. This third podcast examines how atomic weight can expand cinematically. It is 1976 and we are experiencing another balmy summer's evening in America's Midwest. Indiana to be specific, Muncie to be precise, and to be exact, we are at the remote farmhouse of Julian Geiler, where she lives with her young son Barry. Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a story Steven Spielberg originally conceived when, as a teenager in New Jersey, he witnessed a meteor shower. Later, as a filmmaker in Los Angeles, he went up to the Hollywood Hills, formed a handstand, and viewed the dotted patterns of the city below. The image he saw inspired the vision of the mothership that emerges over Devil's Tower at the end of his first sci-fi masterpiece. After engaging with several writers, including Paul Schrader, David Geiler, and John Hill, Spielberg wrote his own script, taking the emotional tone from this song by Lee Harline and Ned Washington. When you wish upon a star, make no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Gillian, played by Melinda Dillon, is baking sketches with charcoal while Barry, played by Kerry Goffey, is playing on the xylophone. Gillian steps outside to put some of her sketches into the trash. There, she notices the clouds gathering in a curious formation. It could be an approaching storm, but when Barry looks up, he thinks something different. As Gillian runs inside to lock the house, Barry is drawn to the front door. A strong light is piercing through the keyhole, bringing with it a dusty, burning glow. Impulsively, Barry opens the door and we are met with a near-blinding orange light. While Gillian is terrified, Barry is inquisitive. And it is that collision between terror and wonder that secures the scene its atomic weight. The way Spielberg had constructed the sequence, meticulously increasing the tension, we expect this to provide a terrifying climax where whatever is lurking beyond the door reaches in and snatches Barry away from his mother and us. But it doesn't happen. Prior to Spielberg's movies, Hollywood genres have been strongly coded, so a horror was scary, a comedy was funny, and a romance was all kissy-kissy. More than any other director before him, Spielberg fused terror with wonder. Barry is drawn to the light not by some malevolent force, but by human curiosity. The light is powerful, but it is not malignant. Clearly then, whatever is out there is not intent on invading the home. It is both alluring and frightening, and that is quite a unique balance. In the original meaning of the word, the image is awful. It fills us with awe. Not terror, not fear, wonder. The alien pictures Spielberg watched growing up in the 1950s were just metaphors for the Red Scare. But by avoiding the xenophobic cliches, that all aliens, be they metaphoric or extraterrestrial, were menacing forces bent on destroying our world, Spielberg was changing the way we looked at the unknown. 
But the image of the door being opened like that is not unknown to us. We have seen it before. Prior to 1978, it would have been the mid-50s, and its illusion is quite appropriate, given that soon Barry will vanish and Gillian will spend the rest of the film trying to find him. I'm talking about John Ford's The Searchers. That film begins with the door being opened onto Monument Valley, the orange earth complementing the light piercing the door in the Guiler home. But there is another, earlier precedent, which again seems appropriate, because soon Barry will go off on a wondrous journey. In 1955, we're in Brooklyn and a young teenager is slowly being inducted into the mob. Directed by Martin Scorsese in 1990, Goodfellas was adapted from crime reporter Nicholas Pileggi's 1985 non-fiction book Wise Guy. That detailed the life and crimes of mafiosi turned state witness Henry Hill. Ask anyone who's seen the film and most likely they will reference the film's opening line. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Prior to Goodfellas, the gangster picture almost always started off by contextualising the gangster's plight. How he was a victim of circumstance, poverty and neglect. And so he plotted his way out by breaking the law. But Scorsese's Henry Hill was filled with desire. And after the opening credits, we see young Henry looking out his bedroom window, framed the way Hitchcock framed so many of his voyeurs, gazing out at what Henry wants to be. Another scene about desire is when Henry, played by Ray Liotta, first takes Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, to the Copacabana. We want to be like Henry and not have to wait in line. But the scene I wish to examine is when Henry recalls another time, this time from his youth, when he didn't have to wait in line. The moment we're seeing is Henry smashing up a group of cars, dousing them with gasoline and then setting them on fire. But what we hear is how Henry earned his family the respect he so deeply desired. He wanted to be somebody. People looked at me differently and they knew I was with somebody. I didn't have to wait in line at the bakery on Sunday mornings anymore for fresh bread. The owner knew who I was with and he'd come from around the counter no matter how many people were waiting I was taken care of first. In the hands of a lesser director, Henry not only would have told us the events, but we would also have seen the same thing. In other words, the film would have doubled down on sight and sound. But this scene attains atomic weight because Scorsese splits the elements essential to cinema, seeing and hearing. But it is not just the difference between what we are seeing and what we are hearing that gives the scene its impact. The scene begins with a view of Henry smashing up the cars. The camera in mid-shot pans right as Henry rushes between the five automobiles. A cut puts us back to the same angle, only this time Henry is dousing the cars in gasoline. 
A cut to an overhead shot has Henry lighting the matches. But instead of panning across the scene again, Scorsese delivers a series of jump cuts. After that, we get a very long shot of Henry as he runs in slow motion away from the cars. And then Scorsese freezes the frame. By having Henry tell us one thing, and for Scorsese then choosing to show us something else, he leaves a yawning gap between the two messages. And it is in that gap that the meaning of the film resides. There is a huge difference between the way Henry sees himself and the way the world sees Henry. He assumes that respect comes from vandalism, intimidation and violence. He doesn't see his behaviour as socially corrosive. The crucial point comes with the freeze frame. A ball of fire has erupted behind Henry, its heat so great he almost disappears amid the flames. But there he stands, or hangs, in mid-air, his silhouette laid out in the form of a crucifix. In a film where the characters pay little heed to religion or spirituality, Scorsese is suggesting something very important. Henry is so obsessed with securing status amongst his peers and being somebody that he will go to almost any length to attain it, even if it means losing his own soul. But you don't have to be religious to believe that. It's just a metaphor, because by the end, Henry has lost his identity. I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. It's December the 8th, 1955, and we are driving through the French countryside. Despite the winter air, the driver of the car, Jean-Dominique Bobby, has the top down. Evidently, he likes the wind in his hair. And what hair it is. Flowing and lustrous, it is just like Bobby's life. He is 43, a divorced father of two, occasionally an actor and regularly an author. But most often, he's the editor of fashion magazine Elle. That is, when he is not whining and dining beautiful fashion models. But then Bobby's body abruptly gives out. Just like the car, it winds down and stops, settling in a ditch. He has suffered a cataclysmic stroke that has rendered him completely immobile. Unable to speak, the only thing he can voluntarily do is blink his left eye. After struggling with his locked-in syndrome, Bobby rallied and somehow managed to write a memoir. Well, he didn't so much write it as dictated by blinking. When it was announced that his memoir, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, was going to be turned into a movie, a lot of people wondered how it could work. A movie about a man rooted to a hospital bed. But that was before screenwriter Ronald Harwood figured out how to access Bobby's mind. And then director Julian Schnabel came in and liberated the story further. There are several films about people whose lives, or potential for life, have either been struck down by catastrophic events or disabilities. Think of Alejandro Amenabar's The Sea Inside, where Javier Bardem plays Spanish fisherman and author Ramon Sancredo, who was 25 years old when he was involved in a car accident that left him a quadriplegic. Sancredo then campaigned for the next 28 years for the right to determine, by which he meant end his own life with dignity. Or 
or you might consider Jim Sheridan's biopic covering Christy Brown's life, My Left Foot, for which Daniel Day-Lewis won his first Academy Award. Despite being born with cerebral palsy, a neurological condition that rendered him almost spastic in his limbs, Brown was able to control his left foot, and it was through that adversarial movement he was able to paint and write. So, both those films centred on men who wrote, and Schnabel's film dove into the world of an author's imagination in order to set the film free from Bowie's bedside. One way Schnabel does this is to deliver occasional flashbacks and reveries to Bowie's life before the accident. But for the most part, Schnabel restricts the camera so that it is firmly in Bowie's point of view, so that his wife and children, his friends, nurses and doctors, had to look at him, us, straight in the eye. Paradoxically, it is a liberating technique because it compels us, the audience, to shift from our seats into the mind of Bobby and empathise with his condition. And then, having spent about 45 minutes establishing that position, Schnabel breaks from it and shakes us free. By this stage, Bobby is communicating with those around him and has resolved to write his memoir. And this is where the film really takes off. In the beginning, this naval hospital was founded to care for children with tuberculosis. In the main hall of the hospital, there is a white marble bust to the glory of Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III, and the hospital's patroness. She visited often. There was a fat farm, a school, and a place where, so legend has it, the great Diaghilev rehearsed his ballet russe. They say it was here that Nijinsky made his famous leap 12 feet in the air. No one here leaps in the air now. These days, there's only the elderly, enfeebled or, like me, rigid and mute. A battalion of cripples. The version you are hearing has been dubbed into English by the original cast, with Bobby played by Mathieu Almerich. And where in Goodfellas Scorsese chose to split the voiceover from the image, here Schnabel resolves to keep them together because we know that Bobby's memoir is partially a dream where he escapes the prison of his body. The camera floats along the hospital's corridor and we see people, curiously, dressed from the 19th century. Nurses, children, a violinist and a strikingly aristocratic woman clearly meant to be the Empress Eugenie. As we pass the Empress, Schnabel has the camera slip elegantly into slow motion, allowing her time to look directly at us. And then we see time leap forward as from down the corridor, one of history's greatest ballet dancers, Nijinsky, comes floating through the space. A jump cut has Nijinsky in another leap, and then we see Bobby coming towards us in his wheelchair, being cared for by his nurse. This is a fantastical past, and a very real present, all made possible through imagination. Schnabel could have shown us Bobby getting up and walking around. But not only would that have denigrated Bobby's achievement of blinking at his memoir, it would also have resulted in sterile and cliched cinema. By doing it this way, Schnabel cinematizes the power of human imagination. Through it, we can transcend our physical states. But if that sounds patronizing to people with physical disabilities, please think again. We do it all the time. We recall our childhood, we imagine futures not yet lived. A date, a job interview, a sports game, a holiday. Consider Stephen Hawking, who, despite being confined to a wheelchair, has, through the sheer agility of his mind, redefined everyone's physical state. Hawking has changed the way we consider time and space. 
like I said, atomic weight. La mer, qu'on voit danser le long du golfe clair, a des reflets d'argent. La mer, des reflets changeants sous la pluie. 